You're listening to the Rule of Life podcast by Practicing the Way. In each season, we explore an ancient practice from the way of Jesus and its relevance for the modern era. This is season three, Fasting. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Rule of Life podcast. You are listening to a bonus episode from the fasting series. A little backstory. Before we developed the fasting practice, we created an online venue for people to ask questions, to kind of give shape to the teaching content for the practice itself. And one third of the questions were about the complex relationship between fasting and eating disorders body shame, diet culture, and a whole bunch of other stuff connected to that. In the West, so many of us struggle to maintain a healthy relationship to our body and to food. This struggle is acute for a lot of people, but especially for women due to all sorts of cultural forces that we hope to explore in this episode. And we felt it would be a good use of time to explore these questions but also felt the need to bring in a wise female voice with expertise in this area. On that note, I am here, (laughs) you're meaning on the internet or on other sides of the country, with Dr. Allison Cook. Good morning, Dr. Cook. How are you today? Oh, I'm I'm well. Thank you for having me. Please call me Allison. (laughs) I don't know. You were in school for a long time. (laughs) I feel like you more than earned a doctor. If, there, if I was in school that long, I, I would say, call me Dr. Comer, but it's a, good, it's a good thing I was not. We all earn a doctorate in one way or the other. That's what I've learned. <laughs> Some of us yeah. get it in school. Now, you are in Boston. I've never been to Boston. It's on the list of wow. uh, cities I would love to visit, but I hear it's basically freezing cold winters and blistering humid summer, but we're recording this in May. Are you Are you in that sliver of weather yeah. in between or is it still winter no there is a little bit of spring we got a sliver here a sliver in the spring and you get a little bit of a bigger sliver in the fall and otherwise yeah you're about exactly right which is why we need our sports here people begrudge <laughs> us our tom brady but i'm telling you you got to have something to get you through the winters here oh my goodness i just can't imagine sitting outside through a football game <laughs> in winter i just i guess i'm not tough that west coast we are just not used to, we just don't have the fierceness of that. I don't think it's I would fierce. survive. For those of you listening who are new to Dr. Cook, she is a therapist, author, and podcast host. Her first book, which she co-authored with Kim Miller, is called Boundaries for Your Soul and is a beautiful exploration of the internal family systems therapy model from a Christian perspective. And her most recent is called The Best of You. I just finished it this morning. It was fantastic. Dr. Cook studied at Dartmouth College and then Denver Seminary before doing her PhD at the University of Denver. Allison and her husband, Joe, are the parents of two adult children. They call Boston home, but spend time in the mountains of Wyoming as often as they can, which is where you grew up. Am I right? Yeah. So small town, mountain girl in the big city, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Right out of a movie. Um, (laughs) Dr. Cook, to start off, would you tell us a little bit about your professional background as a therapist? Like what brings you to this conversation? 
Yeah, I um, am a licensed therapist here in Massachusetts, and I've been practicing as an individual therapist for over 20 years now since I started at Denver Seminary. Um, And then I went on, you know, I got my master's in counseling. I went on, I was really interested in the overlap between psychology and religion. So my PhD is actually in the psychology of religion. So technically I'm a psychologist of religion, which is this very obscure category of psychology. I think, you know, William James was sort of the the founder of it, maybe Kierkegaard. But um, so I got to bring in a little bit of the philosophical and theological side. um, And that really informs my practice as a therapist. Yes. It's so sad those two worlds, which used to be, you know, kind of married together, melded together for most of human history. It's so sad that now they've been torn apart and often operate out of very different worldviews, you know? Beautiful that you're able to bring that together. And then talk to us about, you've worked um, for many years, am I correct, in in a clinic dealing specifically with eating disorders, and you've done some study around that in Christian history, is that correct? Yeah, early on in my career, I studied, uh, as part of my doctoral work, I studied um, what this kind of phenomena around um, fasting saints, especially women saints, um, looking at female saints in the body. And then I also did uh, several years in a pretty intensive outpatient clinic for eating disorders in Denver. Now I see people primarily individually. Um, yes. But that was a huge shaping influence in the, the early years of my study. Early on in your, in your development. Yep. And um, what, uh, tell us a little bit about, just give us the Cliff Notes version of your studies around fasting saints and fasting with women down through church history. Yeah, what's so interesting about that, it just began to fascinate me in part because I was working with a lot of women, in part because of my own life, my own story. So there's all these stories about the, the amazing things that these women did. And, and the one in particular who captured captured my attention was Catherine of Siena. Yes. Um, she wrote the dialogue, right? This beautiful kind of conversation with her, with her, between her and God. But what was really interesting, and I think this ties into this conversation so well, is that there are written letters from her superiors, in particular one begging her to care for her body, wow. that she was taking it to an extreme and and asking her to you know pay attention that that she was in danger of harming herself and so there's this sort of um there's a book about it called holy anorexia that studies this phenomena of these women that in many ways gained a lot of power and and gained an incredible voice and there was also a tremendous cost to their body and it kind of brings to the surface um, just this conversation about this particular spiritual practice. Fascinating. Now, would you tell us a little bit about your kind of personal journey with the practice of fasting, whatever you do or do not want to share? Yeah, sure. Early on as a Christian, as a young woman in my 20s um, and 30s, I did practice fasting. So I would categorize myself. So if we kind of think about the spectrum of if we kind of dive into a healthy relationship with the body. And I, th- I think this is where fasting is such an interesting spiritual discipline because it centers on the body. You know, uh-huh. th- there are other, a lot of the other disciplines you can sort of do absent-minded of the body. But but yeah. fasting is right there, which is beautiful, which is why it's important and why these conversations are so important. Uh-huh. And, you know, because we need to consider the body. I would have put myself in the category of not having a diagnosable eating disorder, but where I think many folks fall, which is this idea of being disembodied, being disconnected from yes. my body. And and I, I sometimes use this this phrase and correct me, you're the you're the theologian, the biblical scholar here, but uh functional Gnostic, right? Where mm, that's a 
That's a great phrase. Yes. Yeah, I didn't, you know, theologically, I wouldn't have said the body didn't matter. But in practice, really, it was kind of like the mind and the spirit are way more important. You know, the body doesn't matter. I didn't think I wasn't an athlete. I didn't think about my body. It would be easy for me to go a day without eating and not really notice it. Um, that that kind of disembodiment that is not uh-huh. a healthy relationship with the body. So that was kind of where I landed um, all the way to a lot of the women I was working with where they're, you know, it had flipped over, crossed the line over to really doing um, harm to the body and become a coping strategy for pain that's carried in the body, right? In a way that is yes. not allowing the healing of the body. And so I think over time for me with fasting, I just started to realize I don't really get it <laughs> because if I don't have a healthy relationship with my body to understand what I'm depriving it of, then it's kind of just one more thing. Um, yeah. To fast forward to today where I've been on a journey of learning, what does it mean to inhabit the body? What does it mean to care for the body? What does it mean to tend to the body that that matters to God at this point in my life, the invitation for me in this particular moment, especially because I've had health and medical issues in the last two years, is is the that piece. What does it mean to nurture the body that I think for me and for many comes before that step of then if we understand that, what does it then mean to hold the deprivation piece in tension with the the feasting piece, right? With the nourishment piece. Mm. An interesting tie-in reading your most recent book, The Best of You, uh, which I'm obviously not the target audience of. It's written to women, and um, but I wanted to read it to get my head around kind of inside your head and into your work. But my interpretation was you're dealing with this kind of subtle complexity that women experience in at least the Western church, where the message of Jesus of take up your cross and deny yourself, which is undoubtedly the message of Jesus, but is often misinterpreted by people groups or personalities, or in this case, many women who are constantly receiving cultural messaging that your voice doesn't matter, put others ahead of your own in an unhealthy way. And so um, it just made me think of that line, you know, you have to you have to have a self before you can die to yourself. And uh, even some, you know, developmental psychologists will talk about Jesus' teaching of death to self and say there is a developmental process that you have to go through as a young adult where you develop, you know, uh, in an academic sense, an ego in order that then you can spend the rest of your life basically dying to that ego. But if you don't do that first part, you don't have an ego then you don't have one to die to. If you don't have a self, then you don't have one to surrender to God. And something is broken down in that maturation process. But it feels like there's a similarity there with the body. You don't have a healthy relationship with the body and with an embodied, practice-oriented model of discipleship. Then to deprive the body, in this case of food or other disciplines of people or noise or whatever um, of work, then you know you you run into a problem. So maybe before we talk about fasting, I mentioned in the fasting practice, Pope John Paul's terminology of the theology of the body, mm-hmm. uh, which is a beautiful, mostly dealing with sexuality. It's ar- arguably one of the greatest theological um, artifacts of the 20th century. 
and some really profound insight in there on the body, the Christian doctrine of sexuality. But, I mean, he's basically saying that, you know, in biblical theology, you don't have a body, you are a body, you know, or at least the body is a part of who you are. It's not just the shell to carry, you know, the real you around. That's a Gnostic idea, it's a Greek idea, it's an Eastern, you know, Hindu idea. It's not a Christian idea at all that your body is some the disparate shell, you know. So I feel like in the Western world in general, many of us are disembodied and there's like a toxic sense of that, of an eating disorder or body shame. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of us that are just kind of not in connection with our body, not in harmony with our body, not in a healthy relationship with our body. And then there is the toxic examples of which eating disorders is one. You have the the Silicon Valley singularity. We're going to upload our consciousness to the cloud, which is just like a hilarious take on ancient Gnosticism. You have, um, you know, you have Eastern spirituality where much of the goal is to vacate the body. So I guess to frame this into a question, for those of us that maybe have either an unhealthy relationship with our body in general or just a, a non-intimate relationship with it, what are some practices or steps that we can take to develop a healthier relationship with our body? What was some of that process like for you in your journey? Yeah. I mean, and first, the first thing I would say is that awareness is what's most important. It took me years. And I don't think I was ever taught explicitly that the body doesn't matter. However, um, I will tell you that the, 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 the theology that has influenced me the most and the one I try to impart the most to others is we will have a body. Our bodies will be resurrected. Yes. And, and that, if you really think about that, is kind of mind-blowing because the subtle insidious lie that can creep in is, well, the body's going to die anyway. You know, it's going to waste away in the soil. So focus on the mind. Focus. But when you start to think about, oh, no, we're going to be living in a body, that body matters fundamentally this body, this body, this body yeah. resurrected set free of sin all of that this but. set free of the shame set uh -huh. free of the trauma you know set free of the pain let's get busy healing that body uh, you know it, 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 as let's let's attend to it as we would our our mental health our emotional health um that the, and and we also know that they are obviously all linked so i think first of all the first step i would say First of all, this is a hard thing in our culture. There's so many toxic messages from everywhere. But really, and I love, John Mark, I see you doing this, is talking about the importance of the body to our spiritual life. And as much as we talk about the denial piece, which I do think is our contribution as a church throughout the ages, uh -huh. we perhaps have over-focused on the denial, whether it's you know related only to sexuality or related to all of the things. but but simultaneously talking about the the health and the nourishment and the yes. beauty and the the joy of the body and the magnificence you know you think about yes. athletes that understand i live with three athletes and it's very fascinating to me yeah the way that they are tending and attuning to that which i will never achieve because <laughs> i don't think it's in my dna but but to realize there is a form of honoring god in that and there's a form of um of healing our own selves as we attend to the body so number one is just that awareness just kind of correcting yes. that narrative if we've received it somewhere it's just putting our finger on we we need to as a church 
uh, family, as a family, as a community, as a group of friends, be mindful of the body and not, you know, just shove it off as the sideline of our spiritual life. I think that's number one, just have these conversations, um, you know, and then it goes from there, right? And then we begin to identify, you know, I have a lot of shame about my body's been objectified. My body's been harmed. My body's been abused. My body is what's held the pain of trauma all these years. So all of those different pieces of the puzzle are going to require a different strategy to begin the process of healing, right? But just that awareness of this is a piece of the puzzle that we need to attend to is really the first step. Mm, wow, thank you for that. What a necessary corrective word to the spirit of the age, you know. Um, as we now kind of, you know, begin to turn our attention to the bodily practice, uh, which is maybe a better word mm-hmm. than a spiritual discipline of fasting, what are, just at a very honest level, some mental health factors that people should take into consideration uh, during fasting or before even trying to fast in particular, if you have a experience of that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's such a great question and I'm so glad you're asking it. I think when we think about the spiritual disciplines, right, we wouldn't have this ambivalence or this concern about say, one would think we might not have this ambivalence about say prayer or scripture reading, but the truth is any spiritual discipline can get distorted. In my practice, I work with people who come to me and have been very harmed by a misuse of scripture. And the solution to that I don't say is, well, you need to race, race right in and keep reading scripture. The solution to that is to say for this moment in your life, for this season, let's figure out, let's work to heal and repair that relationship, right? Because something happened that was wrong and that harmed you and there's a wound and we need to heal that wound so that we can repair it. And I think with fasting, if you are someone who has been wounded and has a a painful relationship with your body, with food, to simply give yourself permission to say, you know, that's a spiritual discipline that maybe isn't the one I'm being invited to right now. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter and that maybe someday, you know, maybe not, maybe someday I will be able to, you know, I hope in my own life, I will be able to bring it back in. But for right now, the invitation, if fasting represents the way we relate to the body from a spiritual perspective, maybe there's an invitation for me to learn what it means to inhabit, to nourish, to care for, to cherish, to respect the body that God gave me as best I can to heal this relationship I have. And that's part of my spiritual practice right now. And it doesn't mean I'm saying fasting is wrong or bad. It's just saying for me, that's a different invitation. Um, so I think that's that's one way to look at it. It does make me think as you're saying that I'm so grateful that The practices of Jesus are pretty much all invitational in Jesus' teaching. They're almost never commanded with the exception of prayer. I mean, all Mm. of the stuff, you know, from synagogue or what we would call church to scripture to fasting. You're invited into them. Some of them are assumed, but you're not commanded. And there's such Mm. grace there, I think, and spaciousness for people 
to come as they are to the lifestyle of Jesus. That's a really helpful distinction, I think. I, th- I think that helps frame for someone, and, and this requires so much discernment because yes. we want to participate in, th- in these, or we feel an extra layer of shame, you know, that we can't. And it's like, like I'm a bad Christian because I'm not, yes, or whatever. Yeah. Yes. It takes a lot of self awareness and discernment to arrive, you know, for me to arrive at the conclusion, gosh, fasting isn't really. It's not serving the purpose that God intended it to serve in my life. It's just sort of like another set of meals I skip that I kind of do regularly anyway, and that's not super healthy for me. I wow. don't think that's what God intended, right? And so let's just pause, let's hit the pause button on that. Use that as an opportunity to go, what is the invitation here? And if the invitation is to learning to heal that relationship with my body, what does that journey with mm-hmm. Jesus look like for me? Um, and just to just name that and honor that. I love what you're saying, you know, whether we're talking about fasting or you have a great example um, in your book of a woman, actually a pastor's wife, who began to experience panic attacks in church due to a traumatic experience with church in her childhood. You know, if, on, if you have two extremes, one is just keep fasting or going to church or whatever it is and just press through the pain. And on the other extreme, you have, well, just abandon it entirely and never fast or never go to church or never read scripture. Either of those extremes are just wildly unhelpful because they don't actually heal what's gone, you know, what's disordered, what's broken, what's wounded. So I love your invitation, whatever the practice is or whatever has gone wrong in your story and in your wounding, the invitation to attend to that wound. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a cue. All of these things are cues. So if you're hearing these conversations about fasting and parts of you are like, oh, you know, parts of you are like, I want to do it. And parts of you are like, I don't know if I should. I've been down that road. I know the slippery slope of that road. I know that that can lead me into these behaviors where it's all kind of, it's all self-denial with no counterbalancing experience of joy with no counterbalancing experience of feast, right? I know how to deny. I don't know how to enjoy, right? If, if these things are kind of swirling, that's a cue to get curious and to let the fasting idea take you on a journey with God. God, why is that a little delicate for me? I yeah. know it is. Let me pay attention to that. Let me get honest with myself. Let me go down that journey. And so while I hear these messages about fasting, I'm going to talk to somebody and say, you know, this is this is pulling up some stuff in me. I yeah. used to do this to an extreme. I used to throw up sometimes, you know, I I there's no shame in naming. We just name it and go, I need to talk to somebody about this. And so the conversation is then productive. Because there's still an invitation to go, there's something that has gone awry for me with this. There's no shame in that. I can name that. I can get curious about that. I can ask someone to come alongside me in that. And I'm also now on a spiritual journey, just like everybody else. It's just a different, it's going to look a little Mm. different. I love your language of cues. That's great language. I've kind of called it, where do I have inner resistance? Like whenever I feel some kind of an inner resistance in my body or my emotional experience towards something in the way of Jesus, I I find it helpful to take it as an invitation to explore, okay, why is my emotional relationship to this off kilter? You know, a, a good friend of mine 
recently introduced me to the concept of an emotional allergy. And we were dreaming mm -hmm. about working together and kind of made the decision, all right, we're going to work together. And so he said, it was, it was really fun. He said, all right, so if we're going to work together, um, you need to know my emotional allergies. And he just started listing his emotional allergies, rooted in his family of origin, his upbringing. When, what he meant was areas where he has a disproportionate emotional reaction that's to right. something that's not actually bad per se or not bad in moderation, but something has gone wrong in his body due to his experience that's made his uh, emotional experience of this thing uh, unhealthy. And it was exactly. so helpful for me to think, what are my emotional allergies? Where do I have, you know, there are things for me like uh, Christian language, Christianese, Christian subculture, which is rooted in growing up as a homeschooler and evangelicalism and feeling like a social outcast. And it's rooted in this stuff from my childhood. Nothing insane, but, you know, painful stuff in my story. And so I have this disproportionate emotional response, you know, at Easter when the pastor says, you know, he is risen and everybody says he is risen indeed. I just like to have this visceral anger come up in me. Like that's not healthy. That's not a healthy, that's not a Christian response. That's something rooted in my childhood. So I feel like what you're saying is there are these, call them cues, call them emotional allergies, call it an inner resistance. Whether we feel that toward fasting or toward church or toward whatever, these are all invitations toward healing. Is that is that what I'm hearing you say? A hundred percent in the IFS world, uh, which was the a model of therapy, we call them, which I love. Another way to call it is it's a trailhead. It's a it's an indicator. There's yes. a trail to go down. There's love a journey, that. right? Like and you see, again, oh, there, there's a journey I can go down if I'm up for the, it. There's a journey. And, and, and it means we don't shame ourselves for that. Like, I love your example of, you know, how many people feel that and then they shame themselves for that. And then they leave the church because, well, you know, there's so many, instead of going, that is so interesting, getting curious. Wow. I wonder what that's about. There's a journey. There's a trail here. Let's go down. Let's get to the root of that. And that's kind of, I think our are the work of being a human and learning yes. to grow and heal and become and fasting is just one i think because of there's so many toxic messages around the body around food especially in this country it's a big trailhead for a lot yes. of people especially for women like oh that's a that's a that's a slippery trail for many women oh boy that brings up all sorts of stuff let's just name that that's real that's, we're not, we don't need to pretend like that. That is very real. And so, so many of us have to go through that journey before we're really going to be able to have a healthy relationship with fasting. Hmm. You know, it's so fascinating. Christian spirituality is obviously designed to enable us to face our pain. But just like you're saying, all of this stuff is perverted by the evil one, by our own heart and pain and coping mechanisms as a way of avoiding, you know, our pain. Um, you mentioned yeah. in your book the concept of spiritual bypassing. Could you explain mm -hmm. that for people? And I think it's a really helpful category. Could you walk us through that? Yeah. Whenever I whenever I post about spiritual bypassing, it, 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 people just go crazy. And it, it reminds me a little bit about what your experience is at the Easter sermon. I'm so glad you shared that because I just think it's it's common. But it's essentially, it, it actually, the irony of the term is a, a psychotherapist coined it who was actually Buddhist. 
and working in a lot of it was not coined by a Christian, um, but was seeing it in some of those settings and sort of some mm-hmm. of these new age or other settings where folks are, ah, I'm good. I'm just following my bliss. And it's like, mm, no, there's pain here that we need to go into. Right. So it can it can take place in any context. But the idea is that literally you're just bypassing the reality of pain, the reality of what's real, of what's true in that moment with some sort of spiritual platitude, spiritual cliche, whatever it may be. Faith over fear or, you know, best is yet to come or I'm a new creation or all true statements. But often utilized to not deal with your father wound or or your stuff. Ask God to take it away, which again, all are good things to do, but all of those things are really invitations. And I think so much about this idea of, and and correct me if I'm wrong on this, John Mark, I don't know if this is accurate, but I love this verse um, where it says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I love thinking about that verse where we think of salvation as translated as healing or wholeness. I've understood that there are times where that is an appropriate translation. And I love thinking about that verse because that's a triggering verse for me when we've been taught that salvation or saved is a one and done event, right? I'm saved. I'm good. I just hang out and wait for heaven. And when you bring healing into that verse and you say, work out your wholeness with fear and trembling, work out your healing with fear and trembling, that that's pretty powerful. That's an ongoing process that's pretty cool because it's it's all of who we are. It's not just our spiritual selves. It's our bodies. It's our minds. It's our, that. I mean, we get to. That's a cool way when you start to go out on that adventure of working yes. out your wholeness Their with whole, fear and yeah. trembling, your whole self in partnership with the one who made you to shine. You know, not to shine brighter than God, but to shine as your human self. You know, this is where I love to kind of bring the best of humanism with Christian theology. You know, we 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 are not humanness. We have a God who made us, but that's pretty cool that we get to heal <laughs> that yeah, self. Psalm 139. Yeah, Psalm 8. Yeah, fearfully, wonderfully made. Yeah, yeah. It's a journey. And I think that that piece of working that out on all these different fronts means that when we bump up against one of those things, those, this is hard. You know, my, you know, my wife is sick with a terminal illness. I'm thinking of my husband who was a widower with two young kids. When I met him, that is hard. Don't tell me, you know, cliches about that. When someone is dealing with really hard issues around food and body shame, these are real things. These are journeys that we have to walk through. But the hope in that comes not from bypassing that or pretending or forcing ourselves. It's naming that and saying, oh, God, dear Lord, I've got a cue. I've got a cue. This is a journey I need to go down. It might be painful, but wow, I've got some direction here. There's some movement I can take. You know, we take ourselves seriously in that and we get to go through this process of healing. Now, I'm someone who loves to journey with people through that. So maybe it's strange that I think that's an adventure, but I've been with a lot of people and the journey of healing is, it's amazing. It's an Mm -hmm. amazing journey to take. Hmm. That's so beautifully said. I mean, there are so few people that tell the truth. Don't you feel like it's either wildly unrealistic optimism or it's just full-blown cynicism. Somebody said to me the other day, optimists and pessimists 
have the same common denom- denominator. Neither of them have need for hope. Yeah. And, you know, hopefulness, which is not the same thing as positivity um, or optimism, such a unique Christian virtue amongst everything else. And I've been reading a lot of Henry Nouwen lately. And I think one of the reasons, a young 20-something that I love, um, I introduced him to Nouwen's writing recently, and he came up to me last week and he said, do you think that Nouwen could be like the patron saint for Gen Z? And, you know, Nouwen's dead <laughs> and, you know, not Gen Z. Just, and I think what he meant was his emotional complexity, you know, I think his, his biography was right, it was his genius, a tortured soul or something like that is the title of his biography. He's a complex person, uh, you know, dealing with mental health issues through his whole life. Jesus did not fix him, you know, it's not like a, mm-hmm. he was fixed mm-hmm. after an experience with mm-hmm. Jesus, devoted to Jesus, you know. Um, had to hold his sexuality in unique ways, but was faithful to Jesus through his whole life. And it's just such a fascinating, but I think I'm so drawn to him because he's brutally honest about the reality of the spiritual life, but he's not cynical. You don't walk away feeling dour or cynical or it's all for naught. You walk away with your heart just soaring and moved into prayer, but yet there is a, there is a ruthlessness in his emotional honesty about the reality. But um, I think that's what you are inviting us to is to a greater level of honesty because that's where the healing comes from, you know? And um, M. Scott Peck, you know, has that definition of mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. And I just feel like that could be a definition of like spiritual health as well. Dedication to reality I know. at all costs, and I, you know? I would I would add to that, and I think Nowen, especially toward the end with the inner voice of love, really embodied this. I often say to people who are on this journey, and let's, if we keep it in the context of the body, of how do you take those beautiful fruit of the Spirit that are, you know, spoken to us in Galatians that are a sign of the Spirit of God, right? And we kind of put those on as like, I need to be kind to other people. I need to be patient. You know, it's like this like duty, you know? Yes. And it's like, how do you take those and apply them toward the parts of yourself, including your body? Can I learn to be so patient with my body right now when it is slowing me down and I don't want it to slow me down? Can I learn to be patient with myself? Can I learn to be kind to myself when I'm dead gummit, but there's that depression again? And can I learn, you know, I think sometimes that's, that's where, you know, that's what I see it. You know, someone comes in and says to me, or I say it to myself, it's like, you know, that same thing happened, but I didn't go to shame. I was able to tell somebody and I was able to, you know, and then there's rejoicing in that there's taking joy in, I did a different thing in that moment. Um, You know, so I, I just think so much of these, these things that get fraught um, can so quickly, we, we have a choice. We have that moment of truth of saying, this is hard for me. This is that emotional allergy. This is whatever it is. I've got a choice here. You know, I can blow past it. I can spiritualize it. Or I can say, Lord, help me go down this path. Yes. I trust you. I, I love, it's interesting what you just said about applying the fruit of the spirit to your body. That is a, it's a new concept for me. I love it. It does make me think of your work with internal family systems and, you know, almost developing healthy relationships with the different parts of yourself. 
And I've, I have limited experience with um, internal family systems and subpersonality work. My limited experience has been wildly positive so far, but just learning to experience myself with almost the complexity that you see even in some of the nature of God, where God himself yeah. is a relationship with himself and learning where is my relationship with different parts of myself healthy and where is it toxic? Where are there parts of myself that I have scapegoated or shamed or crammed into a, a dark room in the basement and not let out, you know? And um, so I love applying that idea, not to just different aspects of my personality, but even to different aspects of our person, of our, you know, our body, our emotional self, and learning to, to welcome and to treat with gentleness the parts of us that maybe yeah. are in need of he in healing, the way that you would treat your friend if they came over and were, you know, sick with the flu, you would be really gentle yeah. with them because they're not well. Oh, and no. um, there are parts of us that are that are not well. Yes, yeah. And so often I know in my experience with that work, the body is that part of me that I have just beaten on. And I mean, you know, you wouldn't treat your your worst enemy yes. in that way. <laughs> the way you treat um, your body. And it is, and and it's different than anything that the culture is telling us. And I think, I think again, if we're trying to bring this back into this discipline of fasting, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking to myself, it's that balanced approach. I, I sometimes think like, if you think about emotions and you think about this idea of emotional regulation, and we have this emotion of anger, right? That is a cue. It's yes. a cue. It's a trailhead. I'm angry. So we don't want to go do something dangerous or wrong with our anger. We also don't want to sideline it. We want to get curious about it. And guess what? That means sometimes emotional regulation means showing restraint in a moment to restrain that impulse, not to just do it for the sake of restraint, but to to pray, to get curious, to reflect, to slow our nervous system down so that when the time is right, to make a decision to on how we want to act on that anger, it comes out so much better. There's so much more creativity, more wisdom with how we do it. I think that same principle could be applied to this idea of fasting. I think when we're thinking about our bodies and we're thinking about these extremes of just getting what we want when we want it, you know, that we kind of see, yes. you know, and then we think of this rigid body denial that is also not healthy, I think there's a sense where we're learning, just as we do with our emotions, with our minds, we're learning with the body how to steward the magnificence that it is, right? That we have to nourish it, we have to treat it well, and there, that there are times, and I'm just kind of thinking this through, that we also want to restrain, we want to hold back, not to punish, not to control, not to, you know... Um, dominate or discipline, but instead to observe, to pray, to reflect, to be aware so that when we come back into the fullness of the practice of whatever it is with our, that we're healthier, that we're wiser, that we're, we're really stewarding our bodies. And that's kind of where I think of that piece of fasting, right? It's that, that little bit of, a, and then we also want to make sure we're doing the feast with it, right? Yes. Um, there's that, you know, that back and forth that comes with really stewarding all these parts of us that God has made.
Practicing the Way is a crowdfunded nonprofit made possible by The Circle, a group of people from all over the world who believe deeply in the work of spiritual formation and discipleship and give monthly to see formation integrated into the church at large. I'm Sydney from Soap Lake, Washington, and I'm a part of this community. To join myself and others in The Circle or to share a one-time gift, visit practicingtheway.org give. Now, talk to us, though. I mean, there are unique challenges that women face with the practice of fasting mm-hmm. and with developing a healthy relationship to food and to the body itself. Could you walk us through some of that from your perspective? You have a lot of experience in that department. Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious, sort of the most obvious for women is the ways that our bodies have been all the things, you know, have been harmed, have been exploited, have been um, objectified, have been wrongly treated, the ways that our bodies have been misused and misaligned. Um, And so a a lot uh, throughout history um, by others. And it's just a real thing. If you think about anybody Uh, It's not just women, but folks who've dealt with trauma, who've been sidelined, who've been marginalized, whose bodies have been made to be um, subjugated in ways that are not right. Um, It's 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 an evil. And there's a legacy of pain that women have that even if as a woman, I personally, you know, if I myself wasn't, you know, um, f- sexually assaulted or physically abused. It's in the air that we breathe. There's a legacy of pain and of harm that we we bear and we see it play out in our culture. You know, we see it play out on our screens. We see it play out in the way we feel about the way our body should look, um, the way that other people name what beauty is. Um, and there are a lot of simplistic formulaic answers to that I I won't go into today, but it's just very real for women. It's very real, the challenges that we face to be in bodies. And, and men, too, especially where there's been abuse, victimization, trauma, you know, um, all of these things. So I think that for women, right, that that's where this relationship with food gets, you know, goes sideways, how do we learn as young girls to honor our bodies, to nurture our bodies, to nourish our bodies, to care for our bodies? That's the role of learning as a young child. That's what our parents are trying to teach us in a healthy home. Um, and we're, they're fighting against so many of these messages that are coming in from school, right. and from media, and from television and the culture, right? And so we're working against a lot of things. But the goal is this healthy nourishing of the body that God gave us, that God loves us to have. So I just think for women, there's this legacy of so much that has been so hard that's getting played out on all the screens in front of us that it takes a lot to unplug from all of that, get out from all of that, get up to be quiet somewhere and really go deep with God on, okay, let's figure out, you know, how to love this body you gave me. <laughs> and it's, it's, I don't know, honestly, some ways to do it other than un- literally unplugging from the world yes. around us because the, the messages messaging. are just so toxic. Absolutely. Do you feel that gratitude is a step in the right direction? Like learning to give thanks for the body? Yes. Thanks yes. for food. Yes. Thanks for health. Yes. Thanks for a yes. new day. 
Yes. You know? Thank you. Thank you for this body. Thank you that it's held me up. Thank you that it's sitting, helped supporting me in this chair right now. It's amazing. You know, that yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's a great place to start. Yeah. Interesting. Now, how, whether you're a woman or a man, you know, life doesn't fall neatly into this categories of, I have a healthy relationship with food. I have a disordered relationship with food. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are clearly in one of the two categories, but most of us are more, not just in the middle, but it depends what moment of the day you mm-hmm. catch us in or what season of the year mm-hmm. you catch us in. How do we distinguish between the practice or the spiritual discipline of fasting and what you would call disordered eating. How, how do you know if the practice of fasting is causing damage to your soul or if it is creating the space for you to grow in an area where you're weak? Like how, do you have any kind of metrics or litmus tests or red flags to watch for? How, how do you know? And I know it's not simplistic, but what what insight would you offer? I think a, a big one is if if it's hard, if you can't really break the fast. I think a big part of the fast is that it has a so beginning saying, and an I have a, end. <laughs> I have a very healthy relationship with my body then because I can break my fast no problem. <laughs> well, to, <laughs> That's all to I be think honest, about when I'm fasting. That, uh, there is a sign of health there. I would say that is actually healthy. When you know, I, when I hear people say, oh, you know, I... I I hate the hunger pains. I'm like, that's actually a sign of health because you're in touch with your body and you can, when yes. it's over, enjoy the feast. That, if you, <laughs> if that's hard for you, right? If there's a, if it's like a slippery slope of, oh, I can, oh, I could maybe, maybe abstain a little more, maybe kind of keep abstaining, uh-huh. maybe, right? That's yeah, maybe lose some more weight. Yeah. And it's not even that it has to be that your motive, people ask me a lot about mixed motives. You know, what if I, what if there's a byproduct of this that I get help? We all have mixed motives for everything, but but just that right. there is that slippery slope toward I'm gonna this is gonna be how I'm gonna finally get rid of that shame, you know that slippery slope toward this is how I'm gonna finally conquer it. It, it, it that's a cue, that's a cue, you know. I would say first make sure you really understand how to feast and how to nourish, and then you know. And then consider introducing that fast, especially if this is something that has been in your background. Yeah. So that that's, I guess, my follow-up question is, what would you say? Somebody's listening to this. They have a history of an eating disorder. They're hearing all of this talk about fasting or people in their church are running the fasting practice. Mm-hmm. Um, should they consider it? Absolutely not. What would you say? I would proceed very cautiously if you've got a history with any sort of diagnosed eating disorder. I would not do it without talking with somebody, uh, somebody who understands the nature of the disorder. Don't do it by yourself is the first. Do not do it by yourself. I don't think anybody. I think you're really you're really big on that. And I really agree with that. Don't. Yes. I mean, you're not supposed to tell anybody, right? The Bible says so then it gets confusing because then it becomes this thing that you can do and not tell anybody. And then that you're in a problem. It's it's not tell somebody, <laughs> um, especially if that's in your but, background. But even even to counter that people misunderstand that teaching of Jesus, you know, because it's in context is the same thing about prayer and we pray with people all the other all the time and you know almost every example of fasting in scripture is a community fast almost every single example is community-wide including children and even animals in many of the stories of the old testament so fasting is primarily historically done in community jesus is dealing with virtue signaling and his corrective is against that kind of spiritual performance 
he's not saying that it's always wrong to let people know you're fasting. Um, So I would imagine that is 10x more true for someone with a history of disordered eating. Yeah. And if a client came to me and I've worked worked with tons of them that, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking right now and said, I'm thinking about fasting. I'd say, we need to have a lot of conversations about that. I would not, you know, immediately say, you know, let's talk about that. Why, how I think about, um, so, so tell somebody, talk about it, really look at your motives again, just, and again, it's deeper than the dieting thing or the, uh, that whole thing. It's, it's a lot of it is, is this how I'm trying to finally get rid of that shame or that pain? Is this the coping strategy that can finally make it all go away where I can finally have control of my life? You know, it's a, it's a more insidious thing there that we've got uh-huh. to name when it goes awry. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so, yeah, talking to somebody, telling somebody, and re- again, that truth, really getting honest with yourself. You know, what got, what is it? What is my reason for wanting to do this? And then is there something else is there a baby step I could take? Is there one small thing I could do that maybe even relates to food, but, you know, to get creative again in community with folks who understand this, um, that would represent this real genuine desire that I want to set this apart for the Lord, um, but that doesn't doesn't take me down this road that isn't going to be healthy for me. I think about mm, I think about to that. um that Catherine of Siena example I gave at the beginning, what was so interesting about her life is there are these records of people in her community cautioning her. Yeah. It was in community and that, that, but did, but did she, did she listen? She did not. Yeah. You know? And so that's the truth, right? Telling ourselves the truth of, you know, I can't, it's always a sticky wicket to go back in time and project our current psychological uh, analysis onto historical figures. But, um, it's, it's kind of trap, you know, it makes me wonder, I'm like, what pain, whether it's her or someone else, there's pain underneath there that needs to come out of the body and be healed. The body is, is doing this heroic work of carrying the pain so often when we're looking at these eating disorders, this disordered behavior, there's trauma under there that we figured out how to put in a box in our bodies. And if we can control that box, we we don't, you know, that pain is too overwhelming. Yeah. Right. And so if you're tempted, if it's like, oh, I can do that again, I can get that back in the box. That's your cue to talk to somebody. And if you do take a step with in, you know, with somebody who knows you well, just take a small, small, small step. Um, and again, maybe get creative with that step. And that's so beautiful. And I would imagine helpful. What are some ways that, I'm not sure about my relationship with food or my body <laughs> right now, but what are, I'd put myself in the medium uh, mm. uh, category, but what, what, what are ways that those of us who are practicing fasting um, can really honor those in our churches and our communities and our network of relationships who, um, for all sorts of reasons, are not at a place where right now they can join us in the practice of fasting. What are some ways that we can both, you know, be bold and courageous in our own yeah. practice of this in a culture of, you know, rampant hedonism, yeah. um, but also honor and not shame people that are are on the healing journey and maybe for a very long yeah. time. 
I think just naming it. There's such so much power in naming things and naming it publicly yeah. and naming, you know, what I, I envision because I love how you talk about doing it in community. So the beauty of that is we're doing it in community. And the downside of that is, oh, folks are going to feel like they can't be part of the activity. Yes. And so I think naming that and saying, hey, we've got alternative fasting groups. For those of you who can't fast for any reason, no questions asked, you find your way to these groups and you're going to do something else. And together, those groups are going to come up with, this is how we're going to participate because we want to be praying. We want to yes. be part of this, but it's going to look a little different for our group. So you just have, you just name it and you create alternative spaces for folks. There's no shaming involved. It's just a, we understand this is... Yes. This is something some of you wrestle with. This is what we've done. You folks over here are going to talk through that. We're all going to be part of this together in our own ways. Oh, that's brilliant. And I love your idea of in the teaching, I clarify that fasting and abstinence are two separate practices mm -hmm. in the Christian tradition. So people today talk about, you know, I'm fasting from Instagram or I'm fasting from Amazon and with lots of love, that's absolutely meaningless. You know, like if you were to, if your doctor said you need to fast for 12 hours before your colonoscopy or whatever, and you showed up and count. said, I fasted from Instagram, <laughs> you'd be like, what are you talking about? That's not fasting. Yeah. That's not what the word means. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if the, you know, ancient Christian practice of abstinence mm. could be a great adaptation for you, mm -hmm. not abstinence from food, not a diet based mm -hmm. one. Maybe it is something else, like I'm not going to read magazines or be on social media or, mm -hmm. you know, shop or whatever. Maybe they're things that feed mm -hmm. broken aspects of your pain. Um, and maybe maybe a help, maybe that kind of discipline could be a step in the right direction without it yeah. encroaching on the healing of your relationship with food and the body. Yeah. An alternate abstinent, you know, an alternate group where we're going to just, we're going to remove something else that's more apropos to our situation. Pe folks who have medical diagnoses or conditions where they can't fast for whatever reason. Um, there's yes. a way in which. Yep. I know yeah. several people. Yeah. Who, for whom I know a couple for whom practicing has been, fasting has been a core part of their life. Yeah. And now for medical reasons, they yeah. can't. And they're, you know, what, what yeah. now, you yeah. know? Well, um, just I want to circle back before we end. Uh, it's been such a great conversation. I'm so grateful for your voice, Dr. Cook. We need it now more than ever um, for so many different reasons. But I just want to agree with what you said earlier. I, I have no more theological education than you, so I'm no more of an expertise expert than you are. But uh, what you said is exactly my understanding that that Greek word soteria, where we get soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, that's translated saved, can also be translated healed. That many times in the four gospels, um, you don't even know, but when you read that Jesus healed someone, the Greek word there is soteria, he saved them. It's the mm -hmm. same word as, you know, your faith has saved you can also be translated, your faith has healed you. And of course, you know, Jesus himself likened himself to a doctor of the soul you know the mm -hmm. the sick are the ones in need mm -hmm. of a doctor and and in his mind the sickness was not just trauma and pain it was sin mm -hmm. which we have to always think about in three dimensions sin done by us mm -hmm. sin done to us mm -hmm. uh you know the trauma side and sin done around us mm -hmm. the like secondary trauma of living in a post eden world our soul has been deeply wounded, mm. you know? And I think it's one of the great contributions of Christian psychology is that 
wickedness and woundedness walk hand in hand, mm. that often our wickedness is tied to our woundedness. And there's a unhealthy humanistic interpretation of that that just blames everybody else mm. on your own agency. Mm. And then there's a healthy Christian you know, lens on that of sin is in multiple dimensions, done by me, done to me, done around me. I am wicked and I am wounded and I am in need not just of legal right standing, but I'm in need of healing. And that is undoubtedly how most of the early Christians thought about the atonement. Uh, one of the most helpful things for me in seminary was had this great theological professor who, you know, for many years was kind of just old school Baptist, but he would talk about how there's a difference between the fact of the atonement, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the grave and he saved the world and theories of the mm. atonement, like how did Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, how did that atone? How did that save me? How did that heal? And there's not one theory of atonement in the Christian tradition or in the New Testament. There's at least five or six, and they do not contradict each mm -hmm. other. And he would always liken it to a diamond. He called it the multifaceted view of the atonement. And he would say that the atonement, the work of Jesus is like a diamond. You look at it from one angle and you see this beautiful side. You look at it from another angle and you see this beautiful mm -hmm. side. But I think a lot of evangelicals and Protestants in the West have a one-dimensional view of the atonement through the Protestant understanding of justification and don't even realize there are whole other uh, angles and viewpoints on the work of Christ that, again, do not contradict, do not compete. They go together, beautiful, to diamond. And one of the most ancient is this idea of the healing of the soul. Mm -hmm. Jesus as the doctor of the soul, the soul as wounded, soul meaning the whole person, including the body, as wounded and as wicked and is in need of healing. And so that's my understanding that has deeply informed how I think about discipleship. It's one of the reasons that I am so uh, pro and integrated approach to discipleship. So Jesus sets his teaching in the writings of the New Testament and my paradigm set the kind of telos. Uh, they set the the right and wrong, the good and evil, the, the end goal of where we're moving toward, the, the vision of what a human being fully alive, what human flourishing is defined as, is defined by Jesus and his teachings. But how we get there is integrated. And that's mm -hmm. why I love, let's learn about internal family systems theory, you know, or attachment theory, or how to heal from trauma, or the body, or the role of exercise, or fasting. Like, yeah. it's an integrated approach to discipleship. The yeah. telos is love for God and love for neighbor as defined by Jesus. And and the, the basic path is the path of discipleship. But an integrated approach, I just so believe in, and I think that you model that really well. So I just want to end with... Um, I read both of your books last week and I finished over the last few weeks. They were both fantastic. And I finished uh, The Best of You this morning and I thought your ending was so unique. It really took me by surprise. You have this kind of beautiful benediction at the end. God, it is you. It is you who numbers my days. I surrender to all that you are. And I will also relentlessly live this life you have given me while I'm still here. And you go on. It's very well written. And then your closing line is, I will continue to heal. Mm. And I just thought, what a fascinating way to end a book. You know, you're kind of waiting for the punchline <laughs> of, and I was healed, 
but it's, and I will continue. I was like, there has to be a whole worldview behind that yeah. sentence, the decision to end a book with that sentence. So maybe to end, just tell us, I mean, it's, I'm guessing that you think of healing not as a one and done, but as more of a process or at the leading question. Yeah. But, or am I misreading oh. you? Oh yeah. I think it's the work of discipleship, you know, to, for lack of a better word, I think it's, uh, he, I think there was a lot in that word. You know, there's, I will continue to heal myself. I will continue to heal. No doubt. There, there are parts of myself that I, I have healed. There are no, no doubt parts of myself I have still yet to heal. There are parts of my new things are going to come into our lives all the time. I will continue to be part of healing, continue to partner with God. I think God is a God of healing. You know, I, I think, um, I think there's a lot to it and it kind of makes me an ambivalent, you know, I always get put in this, we always, therapists always get put in the self-help category and I'm like, it's kind of <laughs> the, the worst, we are healing and there are things you can do to heal. And I am a big believer in healing and we are always still healing. I've got so many parts of me um, that still need, and that to me again, and maybe this is a result of the amount of healing I've done is maybe what's changed. It's not so much that I'm healed. It's that I no longer look at that with dismay. I now can go, oh yeah, this is this is the adventure. So when that thing comes up, all right, God, here we go. Yeah, you know, there's a little Where do more I need faith healing? in that. Where's the, that what's, I, yeah, what's the next go. layer of healing? <laughs> let's go, and um, I've got more of the tools, and I'm a little less fearful about it. You know, but it's not that we're not still doing it. You know, um, so so you're saying that even though. You have a PhD in psychology. You still need a little bit of healing. Are you saying that? And 20 oh, years of Lord. Let me bring my husband therapy. down here and you can just, or, or my two kids and you will, you will hear it all. They just think it's so hysterical that I write on boundaries because I struggle with nobody's business with boundaries. So yes, you, you, you that's why we have families, John Mark. That's why we have families. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The loyal love. Yeah, I think yeah. about discipleship often not as a linear journey, but as like a spiral, as like concentric circles mm. that just get deeper and deeper and tighter and tighter. And so you might have, you know, a whole experience of healing in your relationship to your body or food or your family of origin or your trauma. But then you just, you kind of circle around and each time it goes deeper and often it's like a deeper cutting and then a deeper healing and a deeper wholeness. And I don't know that we ever finish that no. spiral, this side of resurrection, you well, know. And then someone else starts to heal, and then that influence, then they start resurface in your life, and so then you've got to go. You know, it's it's those mm. this, that concentric circle. I yes. love that. Then intersects with everybody else's. Um, yes. Yeah, we're not alone. We're never bored. <laughs> we're never. You know, there's always there's always in life with Christ. There's just always more to to kind of discover it's beautiful yes i will continue to heal beautiful thank you for coming on thank you for your life for your many years of hard work both in school and in office and in clinics and the wisdom that has been hard-earned and at the same time as a gift of god we're very grateful for you grateful for your voice to those of you listening, where can people find more of your work, listen to your work, read your stuff? Where should people go? Uh, my website probably is the best, drallisoncook.com. I have a podcast called The Best of You where I just kind of talk all things faith and psychology every week. 
Um, I'm not on socials too much anymore as part of my current healing journey, but you can find me there at Dr. Allison Cook. So you're so you're saying <laughs> you're moving forward in your discipleship. <laughs> well done. Thank you. <laughs> Ever deepening the spirals of healing yeah, and wholeness right sure. there as evidence. Yeah. No, I love it. Well, thank you for coming on. Bless you. And thank you to all of you for listening. We'll be back with the next season, with the next practice this fall. God willing, in the meantime, the peace of Christ be with you.